All right, gentlemen, here's a question for you. What's the rarest or most valuable thing that you'd want? Well, for me, I got my collections. I collect those Mondo posters and all those kind of companies, and I collect my Blu-rays. Um, Blu-rays, not really anything kind of that crazy. I mean, as crazy as they can get, they're not really anything I couldn't like just suck it up and just be like, all right, well, I'll, whatever, I'll pay $200 for this fucking movie. I don't care. It's fine, whatever. Um, but these posters can get pretty pretty crazy in how much they cost. And uh, I got an entire folder <laughs> open of just like shh, posters I want to buy that I want to keep looking on the secondary market for. Some of which are like, you know, uh, not bad. I could I could buy. I could tighten the belt that week or month or whatever and buy it. But then there's shit like this one Halloween poster that Mondo did that is unbelievably popular and it is it came out about maybe six years ago eight years ago when this shit started it's a horizontal poster it's uh i think 18 by 36 and it's just a picture of my it's like a painting of michael myers in the wood on the streets of haddonfield and the the leaves are blowing and it's great great goddamn poster and the minimum you could usually find this goddamn thing for is $1,500 on eBay. And yeah, I'm not spending that money right now on my $55,000 a year uh, job that I have. But, you know, if I ever <laughs> ever find myself with just an extra couple of grand lying around, I could go, yeah, maybe I'll buy this freaking thing. But uh doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon but i certainly would love that fucking poster in my house for me what i've really been drawn to lately um is it's not so much about blu-rays or dvds but it is films i am so exasperated at the things that i can't watch you know we were discussing this when we were talking about the crowd with david sims about how the movie just doesn't exist on physical media but you can find it uh you know through less than you know legal means same with like Abel Gans's Napoleon. I would love, but you know, there's there's no way to you know you have to get a region to Blu-ray. I'm interested in the stuff. I want copies of things that exist, and we know somebody has them. It's not like London After Midnight, but just there's no way to watch them. Uh, I was doing a big Oscar binge, and the fact that there are Oscar-winning films that just seemingly are sitting on someone's shelf, um, a lot of live-action shorts. Um, uh, the Dollar Bottom and, and films like that. Uh, the one that fascinates me is Max Sennett, the great silent uh, comedy director, made the first one of the first Oscar-winning shorts uh, called Wrestling Swordfish. We know it exists. We know it's sitting in a canister somewhere. Where the hell is it? Um, there's a the true story of the Civil War. The only way to watch that film is to literally buy a reel of film of it. Like I, I've only found canisters of the true story of the, uh, of the Civil War. So I've started buying up whatever I can of these films that there's no other way to watch them. Um, there's a Norman Rockwell documentary that only ever got a VHS release, so I bought that. Um, and then now I have to find a VCR to watch it. Um, so I would love those. And most of all, the one I'm most interested in, I would love a copy of, and there's no available copy of it, um, is a documentary called Design for Death. It is uh, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. It is a World War II propaganda film. It was apparently full of some really distasteful imagery, but it was written by Dr. Seuss. 
there's a Dr. Seuss World War II propaganda film called Design for Death that people have seen because somebody has screened it at various retrospectives, but there's no way for me to watch it. So that's the kind of thing I want. I want that or Pups and Puzzles, these films that just, there's no way to watch them. I, I want them. So that's that's my thing that I'm seeking out is these films that just we know they exist but have just not been made available. This is the stuff that dreams are made of. We're talking 1941's The Maltese Falcon here on You're Missing Out with special guest David Bloodband. Our guest today is an actor and writer. You've seen him on the shows The Chris Gethard Show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Netflix's Hollywood. He also appears in the horror film Uncle Peckerhead. David Bloodband has joined us today to talk about the Maltese Falcon. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you, David. I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so glad to finally meet you as much as you can meet anybody in uh, COVID times, uh, you know, remotely. Uh, I've been a big fan for a long time. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice for you to say. I was a long time uh, TCGS diehard, and uh, I want to apologize in advance because. I never got to see it live, and uh, wow. I finally got to go. A friend of mine invited me and said, hey, I got a ticket. Come see it. And that ended up being the last episode you ever did. So I apologize that I killed wow. your show. Oh, that's okay. You know, it's important to live your life. And, you know, <laughs> I learned that. That's one of the biggest things I learned in comedy is, like, you don't have to go to every show. You just got to, like, live your life, make choices that support you and how and how you're feeling and, like, There'll always be other things to see. I'm, and I'm also so glad to have you here because I, I can tell you this. Um, uh, we've had uh, Riley Soliner was on the show talking Modern Times, and we had Patrick Kotner on uh, talking Star Wars. And both of them, when I said, can you think of anybody that you know might want to come on? You were the first person each of them said. Oh, well, thank you. Immediately love, right away, like, you've got to have David on. So I love both of those guys. They're great. Uh, love, I would love to hear their episodes. Uh, it's on, I forgot to hear Riley's. Uh, what, what did you guys talk about with Riley? Riley, we did Modern Times because I had watched, I'm a big fan of, obviously, TCGS. And when I watched his clan shows, I was like, Perfect. oh, this is so much. This is yeah. so indebted to Modern Times. He must love that movie. And then I said, do you want to come on for this? He goes, I've never seen it. That's <laughs> so, so great. I'm so glad you introduced Riley to that movie because he's because that is perfect for Riley. That that's so great. I love the clone shows. So funny. Yeah, I was I was like, it's so it's so perfect. So then you know we reached out to you and I sent you the list of every film we had available and you immediately uh, said Maltese Falcon. Yeah, I'm excited to do this one. Uh, Tom is a huge uh, John Huston fan, so I, I think this will be <laughs> love John Huston. Always happy to talk about his uh, stuff. Tom, are you a John Huston fan? Oh, I love John Huston. I okay. genuinely, I, I, I love his stuff. I, I'm, you know, I try to get as much as his stuff as I can. I got like, I got eight of his movies uh, oh, wow. on my to watch pile of shit like uh, yeah. the thing and uh, Beat the Devil, The Misfits. You know, I got a bunch of stuff. I've seen a lot of his stuff too. I read his autobiography last year. Oh, yeah. I think that was last year. That might have actually been four months ago. I don't know time at this point anymore. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I got. <laughs> I got a big biography waiting to get to about the Houston, starting with Walter and going all the way down to Angelica. I, I want to get into that as well in the conversation because it's such they're such a fascinating family. Oh, yeah. And, and like his whole career and he directed so many movies that were like, wait, they made a movie and he directed that like everyone forgets that there's like 
He directed a Moby Dick movie. He directed Annie. He directed fucking Wise Blood. He directed like all these like weird, all these obscure novels, and then like these huge novels adaptations. I mean, and this is his first movie, and he kind of yeah. came out of the gate guns a blazing. And uh, wasn't he like twenty-eight or something when he directed this? Uh, he was in his thirties, I want to oh, say, okay. because he was kicking around for a while. Because he was he like uh, an actor, and uh, he was like a theater actor and a theater yeah. director for a while. And this was like right. he was doing writing jobs in Hollywood before this, and this was like his big like okay, kid, you get to direct the movie. What do you want to do? And he's like, I want to do yeah. the Maltese Falcon. And then, yeah. you know, World War II happened. And right, he went right, off right. to war. <laughs> and uh, he was the only guy of the five that came back that came back exactly the same as he was when he left. Let's start this off proper because we always start uh, with me reading the registry statement as to why it's in. And I can tell we're all chomping at the bit to get into this one. So I don't sure. want to delay us anymore. Um, so... We obviously have our reasons why this is in the registry. Let's talk about why the registry uh, selected the film, which is after two previous film versions of Dashiell Hammett's detective classic, The Maltese Falcon, Warner Brothers finally captured the true essence of Hammett's story in 1941 by wisely adhering to the original as faithfully as possible. Houston, a screenwriter making his directorial debut, was the catalyst for its success, and Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade provided the film's heart and soul, earning him stardom for his effort. A hard-boiled, often unscrupulous San Francisco private eye, Spade gets drawn into a series of intrigues and double crosses by client Mary Astor, who, along with partners Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet, are in search of a jewel-encrusted statuette shaped like a fountain. Among the most influential movies to emerge from the Hollywood studio system, The Maltese Falcon is as significant in some ways as its contemporary Citizen Kane for its contribution to establishing an entirely new style of storytelling that would become identified as film noir. So that is the registry statement on the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I give it credit that's, you know, sometimes, uh, David, when we do these and I read these statements, they're just plot synopses or like the searchers. They seem to not like the movie they're talking about. <laughs> the searchers one seems to take the stance of like, well, clearly the people back then were too stupid to understand it. I'm like, oh, all right. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of problematic things about the searchers and even like to the point of like, you know, uh, the star John Wayne. Yeah. which. <laughs> Which is, but what's fun about this this film in particular, I kind of love it. I'm glad they gave credit to uh, Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet because that's kind of what I think is so remarkable about this film is the fact that it's not just obviously it's Humphrey Bogart being a movie star, right? And John Huston, but this film is so full of people who you look at and you're like, oh, this is an entire archetype. Like I, you, you'll see Peter yeah. Lorre parodies in in every cartoon and Sidney Greenstreet parodies in everything, and yeah. Yeah, because they're not they're not making fun of Peter Lorre from M. They're making yeah. fun of Peter Lorre <laughs> from stuff like this. Or maybe if they're pulling some deep cuts, they're doing his stuff with Corman and Vincent Price. But this is uh right, you know, when you watch right. all Rooney Tunes, this is the Peter. L- yes, can I help you, Mister Bonnie? Yes, uh, this this is the Warner Brothers Peter Lorre that I think our generation was introduced to through Looney Tunes and like all these like because yeah because those are the. Like Looney Tunes, when you go back, you realize they're like the BuzzFeed articles of their time. They're just like these bizarre, like arch takes on, you know, celebrity gossip and parody of the day. And like, I think like the Cuckoo Nuts Groove uh, cartoon is just like, it's just just like celebrity parodies. It's just like, you know, it's Peter Laurie, it's Bogart, 
It's like it's Sydney Green Street. It's all these guys that just had Warner Brothers contracts. And Peter Laurie specifically, I was just watching the I re, I rewatched the movie this morning, and something I hadn't like clocked before is Peter Laurie is so thin in this movie compared yeah. to his other acting roles and his other movies. Like, like when he's a he's like fresh faced and like you know bigger when he's in M. Yeah. But like in like he he's lost a lot of weight for for whatever reason for uh Maltese Falcon cuz like in Casablanca he's back to a little bit more of like I think what we recognize him as. And then like by the time he's in the yeah, by the time he's in the Corman movies he's like an, an older man. And what I think is so remarkable too when you mention Casablanca is obviously the three, you know, uh Bogart Green, Green Street and Laurie are all in that as well. Yeah. And they are all they're all people who like you mentioned the Looney Tunes characters, they're so easy to parody. Yeah. They're they have such a specific vibe and yet not one of the performances that they're that any of them are giving in Maltese Falcon feel like the performances they're giving in Casablanca. They manage to while still being their star personas, they manage to find entirely different characters between those two films, which I think is a remarkable thing. I think that's yeah, I think that might be true for Peter Laurie. I don't know if I can agree with that for Green Street, only because like City Green Street's one of these like strange stories where you hear about like that guy he must have been like a legendary theater actor who had like a bunch of like credits throughout his career but like he's only in like a couple of movies and didn't get his start until he was like his late 50s like he's not like he's not like a trained actor if i'm not mistaken right like he's a he was like a he was like someone's agent or something for a while and then like got his hand at it like got to be in a couple of movies i think i, I don't i don't know his you're right you're right i'm looking it up right now his film yeah. career didn't begin until he was 61 yeah yeah so that's like someone with not a lot of training but like one of the best monologists of the movies in that era like he's such a good he's like brian cox he's like a guy that just like gives information out in these like captivating you want to listen to him he's and he's great and he's only in these like a handful of movies yeah and this was his first movie which is um you know one of those things that uh houston was pretty good at doing he was very good at finding these distinctive faces and characters and people yeah. that weren't maybe necessary i mean humphrey bogart's not like a typical leading man movie star yeah. at the time he's like by all sense like he's kind of an ugly dude like compared to like some of the bigger dude like the bigger stars at the time he's like not the greatest looking dude he looks like a mean dude like he looks like a fucking bully and he was like you watch i watched a, a documentary about bogart a long time ago where they had like like silent film clips of his early roles and he's trying to be like his he got cast in his early work as like the best friend in like light com light romantic comedies or farces. And you can tell it's like, it's not a natural role for him. Like he looks like an asshole and he's like this tall freak. And that's, I mean, and this is like essential, like kind of his first big starring role. Cause you look through his yeah. IMDb, everything before this is like, maybe he's fourth build. Like if he's even on the poster, right. he's fourth build or third build. Uh, but this is like his big breakthrough and I, you know, this is kind of the thing that Houston is great at. And you look at everyone in this movie because not, you know, not to throw 
any shade or whatever, like, you know, beauty standards, or whatever, but like oh, Mary no. Astor and Bridget O'Shaughnessy is not, you know, she's not like these other major stars of the time. Like she's, yeah, she's a good looking yeah. woman, but she's not, you know, ch- you know, setting the world on fire the way, you know, whatever, like Joan Crawford or people or, you know, uh, Rita Hayworth at the time were doing. I do think that uh, John Houston, I was thinking about this this morning. I was like, John Houston's like a director we have now, but he's, but, Directors, we we didn't have directors like him before. I think he was trying to be like Howard Hawks, but like, or or not Hawks, because Hawks is like his generation. I can't remember. Like maybe I consider him like the Paul Thomas Anderson of his generation. Like a guy that comes from a showbiz family, is like, like started young, had like different takes on like what movie stars should be and the types of actors you wanted to work with. Uh, had his own like backing support from the studios that from like was considered a wonderkind from very early on and like pretty much worked with his crew of people consistently for most of his career and uh, like like he like him and Bogart worked together again in my in like my favorite Bogart performance which is the treasure of Sierra Madre same that's Houston really letting Bogart be as dirty and gross and not attractive as possible. I mean, exactly. that's like Houston keyed into that and, and their relationship yeah. is so funny. Like they're reading that book and just, you know, yeah, it's it's not too dissimilar to the relationship between like John Ford and John Wayne, where like John right. Houston wasn't as much of a psychotic bully as John Ford, but he right. was kind of like, he would like to bust Humphrey Bogart's balls because Bogart could be a bit of a prissy little movie star. Yeah, he would just like the John Huston. He would just twist his nose. Like John Huston's favorite author was Ernest Hemingway. He was one of those guys that kind of like you know fancied himself as like he he met Hemingway. (laughs) What he he met Ernest Hemingway, and the first time they met, they almost got into a fist fight because Hemingway was like, "Oh, I could beat this guy up," and Huston's like, "Uh." Dude, you're an old man. I really don't want to fight you because I used to be a boxer when I was a kid. So right, exactly. let's not like, do this, old man. I think there's something interesting, too, about about what Houston does. And, and like Dave was saying, and Tom, you made an observation that uh, where you said, oh, this is his first Bogart's first leading role. And in yeah. my mind, I was ready to reject that because I was like, no, of course it's not like he, he had other leads. And then I looked I went back to his filmography and I realized that everything I'm thinking of as a Bogart led film whether that's Dead End or Angels with Dirty Faces. The thing is, I remember them being Bogart starring films, and they're right. not. He's not the lead. He's far from the lead, but... He outstarred the other cast members. Yeah, and what's impressive about this film and what Houston kind of figured out is there's this weird mentality that people used to have in Hollywood, uh, and maybe they still do to some, you know, I guess they still but this idea of like, oh this guy pops or this actress pops. So let's put them in a secondary part and then let's get Leslie Howard to play the lead in Petrified Forest or let's get, you know, what have you. And instead, Houston seems to just recognize like, why can't I take this person and this person, all these people who are the interesting people, the ones who have an interesting face and an interesting vibe. And why don't I put all of them together into something? And you kind of see that throughout his career of like favoring the most interesting people and the most interesting presences over necessarily the stars, you know, the, the pre-approved stars. And he talked about that as very much like he, he's dealt with a lot of stars and a lot of the times he just really didn't like dealing with them because they were so like only caring about like 
how they look or whatever, not really caring right. about the performance. And he was just like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with not working with this, this guy ever again, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, he's not an actor's director. I don't think he's, I mean, he works well with actors he likes, but he's not like gonna, you know, bend over backwards for the actor. It's his vision. It's his movie. He's going to see it like done. Because Robert Forster uh, worked with him. Uh, his first role was in uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye. And he told the story, like, I didn't know how to act on the screen, blah, blah, blah. So I was working with John Houston, this legend. And I was like, John, you got to tell me what to do. John, you got to tell me what to do. He's like, we get to set that. He's like, John, you never told me what to do. He goes, look into the camera, son. He goes, you see those lines? That's the frame. <laughs> just know where the frame is. That's yeah. it. And it's just like, I'm hiring you to do a job. Just do your job. Like, I hired you for a reason. So I know what I'm doing. Just just, just read the goddamn words the way you think it needs to be done. And we'll go from there. Good directors give those kinds of notes. Like, those are the types of stories you hear from good directors. They're like, especially if you're an actor. Like, I, like I, lo- I loved Robert Forster. He was one of my favorite actors. I was, like, always excited to see him and stuff whenever I, like, you know, he was in that uh, show uh i'm dying up here as one of their one of the comedians dads and i was like holy shit robert forster's in this show this is great i love like as an actor when you're like you know especially like early on in someone's career when you're like you know on set for something and you're not sure what you're supposed to do the like impulse is to maybe ask the person in charge like hey am i doing okay and then you quickly get uh told i was like look you wouldn't you wouldn't have been hired if we didn't know what we were doing. So like, you know, just trust that everything is going to happen and like that's, you know, just do your job and I I appreciate and I appreciate that. Which I mean, you know, extends to the way everyone else in this movie is cast because oh, he yeah. seemed to get that um Green Street was was Gutman, that Peter Lorre yeah. was uh Joe Cairo, that these people were all these people and, you know, I think he knew what he was doing with this story because the, uh, a lot of the movie stars at the time maybe didn't, I don't think had that really kind of scumbag f- sensibility to them the way Humphrey Bogart does. Cause that's kind of the main thing that I take away every time I rewatch this movie is they really let Sam Spade just be an absolute scumbag. Sam Spade's an and asshole and, and it's very grimy and you're right. It does. This is like realizing at the time this movie came out because I'm always like, yeah, it, it like, Maltese Falcon is one of those movies that I think if you recommend to people, even if they are into movies, they're not into movies. That's one movie that feels like, you know, Mount Rushmore or uh, the Grand Canyon. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's there. And then you actually see it. And it's like, holy shit, this is fucking good. And then like, oh, yeah, it's not cleaned up the way other adaptations from gritty novels were at the time. It's like pretty grimy. It's like Sam Spade's an asshole. The, the the characters feel shady. Another actor that uh, uh, we haven't mentioned yet that I wanted to give an honorable nod to is uh, Elisha Cook Jr., one of my favorite character actors. He plays the yeah. almost silent hitman for uh, for Green Street's character, and uh, I he's like one of my favorite actors that pops in through throughout movies of the forties. And to, up until like the early seventies, he just pops up and stuff. And he's one of my favorite like character actors. He's so weird. And I think the other testament to what you're saying is, you know, when you talk about how it wasn't cleaned up like it was at the time. What I love about this film is it's in a perfect spot in history where uh, it has not. It's it's doing something different than 
the previous films had done. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, as the statement says, establishing a new language, but it hasn't, uh, obviously the, the skeleton of what we call film noir hasn't even been properly established yet. So mm-hmm. it doesn't lean on the cliches like a lot of other noir do. I mean, I was looking at, because I watched the Warner DVD set they put out way back when of Maltese Falcon actually comes with the previous two adaptations of Maltese Falcon on it. Oh, whoa. Yeah, two like 76 minute like programmers, essentially. Um, right, 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 right. And so there was the 1931 Maltese Falcon, where when you mentioned Sam Spade being an asshole, in yeah. this, he's very kind of just standard detective. But because it's kind of pre-code, uh, you know, you do get a lot of explicitly sexual stuff and yeah. explicitly, you know, that that is not in, I mean, that's in the original Dashiell Hammett novel. Yeah. Um, that is not in the, the Houston film because he just couldn't do that. I mean, there's, you, in, the, right. in the Houston film, there's that moment of, uh, Sam Spade goes, ah, there's a, there's a dollar, you know, there's a hundred dollars missing here. Sydney Greenstreet, right. he goes to Sydney Greenstreet, he goes, did you pocket it? And Sydney Greenstreet goes, sure. In the original book, the Dashiell Hammett book, and in the 31 version, before he asks Greenstreet, he's like, you know, uh, there's a dollar missing, and Greenstreet goes, I didn't take it. He takes uh, the the woman, uh, Mary Hitchcock, into, in this film, played by somebody else, but he takes her into the bathroom and makes her strip in front of him so he can make yeah. sure she didn't take it. Yeah. And only I- then does he come out and ask Green Street for the money, and Green Street gives it up. So it's a real kind of sick power move that he's doing. So that shows up the 31 version, but the 31 version is so dull, and the Fat Man character right. is just... It's all very dull, and then they made it again with Betty Davis a couple years later called Satan huh. Met a Lady, which is done as a... Huh. Yeah, and it's done as like kind of a comedy, and the Sam Spade huh. character, who they changed the name of... Okay. Um, yeah, they change the name of it and they make him play like a very just like ultimately sleazy in the you're supposed to know he's a bad guy way, you know, the very slick sleazy way. Okay. Um, the only interesting thing about Satan Metal Lady, which is absolutely terrible, is that for the fat man character, they replace it with a, a woman, a large woman they call the Baroness, huh. who's at least you can start to see even from that where Houston looked at that and said, oh, this character can be more interesting than the original film. You know, the original film just has him as, I'm a, I'm called the fat man because I am a big guy, and otherwise I'm just a tough who wants something valuable. And by the time yeah. you get to the, the 1941 version, the fat man, as they call him, you know, like, is a presence and is a, there's a whole vibe to him. Yeah. There's a whole feel to this. And that's kind of what I think works about this movie so well is that even though you believe that Sam Spade has, you know, by virtue of being a private eye, is, you know, is is aware of the underworld, he keeps encountering all these characters that hint at this much larger uh, world beneath the surface that none of us know exists. You're right. This movie, this movie is uh, precedes the cliches. In fact, it sets them up. And one of the things that, first of all, Dashiell Hammett like needs to be mentioned that he was like at, at a certain point in his like young you know career as a before he was a writer, he was a detective for the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And I've always been fascinated with just that life of detectives, like. I'm just like, you know, even like, cause there, it means it used to mean something else than it does now. 
And like it felt, it feels more like you're being a, a civil servant more than like a part of the police force or something. Like you're like a private investigator, and and mostly they would just like you know look for you know to make sure people's uh, husbands weren't cheating on them or something, or like or like if somebody skipped town uh, for you know trying to embezzle money or something, like pretty light stuff. Or somebody went, you know, people went miss. It was people went easily missing. And they would just get hired to try to find, and most of the times they would be unsuccessful. But like the the stories of these guys, that Hammett and like Earl Stanley Gardner and Wilkie Collins and all these guys from the like pulpy generation of like crime fiction writers, all their stories would be like so convoluted and complicated. There's so many layers that they like, and coincidences and like happenstance things like i think like a good something that's a great um uh uh double feature for the maltese falcon is uh inherent vice the pt anderson adapted from thomas pynchon's novel because it's like it's the other end of the spectrum it's fully like generations after the genre has already been like done to death and parodied and like it's but it's come back to like a serious place but it's now like in this 70s neo-noir like sort of commentary on the rich and stuff but it's all set in san francisco it's a double it's a double feature san francisco noir film i think it was either dashiell hammond or raymond chandler i forget who said it but some they were a movie was being made based on one of their books and they were writing on it and the the director asked them like Okay, listen. So there's this moment, and like the killer's this guy, but like it doesn't make sense because at this point the killer with the this character was doing this, yeah. Uh, so it doesn't really make sense. And one of them, I forget who it was, but they were just like, "So, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like it, it, yeah. it's the journey that matters." Which yeah. is, um, I mean, kind of one of the brilliant things I love about this movie is, which is that. Th- all of this is happening for nothing. Yeah. For nothing. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's totally worthless. Like at the end is like, it's, it's pretty like, it's, it's a funny commentary on like rich society, which like, I guess, which, you know, Hammett probably had a lot of opinions considering like a lot of the clientele you would have as a, of a detection, a detective agency where like a certain, you know, class of wealth you know, rich people looking for their runaway kids or like, um, or, or, you know, if you're, if you're like an heiress and you, and you, and you think you're, and you think your husband is like uh, a phony who just wants you, wants to sleep with you for your money or something, you'd hire these guys like that. You like, there would be that, like, that's, that, that is like who would. So it's like this. So it's also kind of a paranoid fantasy of like, well, what if, what if following the trail of one of these cases was was like led me down this weird path to like other things and like you get like the the green that you see that the fat man character like he represents like this darker web of activity going on in like the city and like you know new york san francisco los angeles all these like cities that have that are known for having vice and it's dark and you know it's it's you know post-world war ii paranoia of the city well it, it's funny too because it's even it's it's pre-world and war it's ii pre-world and, war II, actually like you're right and I, I i love the little dig that they throw at rich people in it where yeah. you know um spade is trying to grease him for more money and he's just like well i can't actually get more than ten thousand, so this is really <laughs> all i can give you 
which is this great little dig at rich people just like yeah you're rich quote unquote you have all these things but you actually if you needed to get your hands on money you're kind of useless yeah and um, like borrowing from other rich people it's like that's like which yeah, is it's all just like, a self-perpetuating cycle of just rich people getting money from other rich people and just whatever they stay rich and and that's and that's that's the whole thing that's in every crime movie you realize that watching the Irishman, you realize that watching the Goodfellas is like it's all just people borrowing, you know, uh, it's like borrowing from each other to like uh, what, what, what's the fucking what's the fucking um, idiom for that? It's like you're uh, paying Mary to pay Paul or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm butchering it. I don't know. I don't know. What uh, it is. Yeah, it's borrow from Peter to pay Paul, right? Yeah, yeah. That's or that's what it is. Like it's just like they're all it's like nobody's actually rich they just have they're just making believe that they have all these things and they're putting some like persona out there but they're really just like struggling to survive like everybody else and like he spent 17 years seven he's like i spent 17 years looking for this thing which is just just that another great dig at rich people just the insane lengths they'll go for nothing for nothing just to just to make themselves feel good about something, and uh, I just love the one line that at halfway through the movie when he meets Gutman for the first time, and he's just like, "Well, uh, how much would you want for helping us get the Falcon?" And he goes something along the lines, "I know how much the cost is in human life you put on this thing," which is just like, the, <laughs> the, the, which is the way you kind of it is with rich people. It's like, well, you really don't care how many people you're killing for this thing because, well, I'm rich and I'm I'm privileged and i oh i deserve this thing he even says later it's like well he goes well wouldn't it actually be owned by the uh the king of spain and he's like well if you're going by uh by this it's actually you know based on possession and it's basically saying i don't care who's supposed to have i want it that's a funny thing too of like just having a joke about like well you know if we're gonna base if we're gonna base like ownership on the king of spain because that was like as like a dig of like oh i don't think anybody quite knew who the king of spain was officially at the, is that right was that that's what at least i thought the joke was of like it just yeah, feels so, more like a joke of like that almost like the way archaeologically it's like oh well we found it right. in the desert so it's ours even yeah. though it's like well no it's actually this culture's thing i mean it was meant right. to get shipped to spain that's you know to say malta is a part of spain right and it's right, like well right. no buccaneers stole it and now this rich buccaneer and everything but name only is trying to steal it again and he goes yeah. well ownership is based on possession and uh right. i'm trying to possess it i mean there's such a thing of why it's so perfect that it is the this maltese falcon this this bird statue mm-hmm. uh when you watch if you watch satan metal lady which is the you know the betty davis one they did they change it they change it from a bird to a ram's horn filled with jewels huh then you know in the end they dump out the horn that's just dust instead of jewels. And there's this reaction okay. of, oh, God, we got it wrong. Huh. And what I love about it being this bird statue is that it's so unimpressive. It's the opposite of uh, the Pulp Fiction briefcase where it opens up and you see something shining. and You're like, oh, I wonder what that is. When you finally get the reveal of the bird, you, there's no way to look at that and go, I get it. There's no, the and Houston's version especially does nothing at any point to convince you of why this thing, intentionally it does nothing to convince you why this thing has value they they might as well you know be be fighting over uh, you know a, a a a stick 
you know, it's, it's, it doesn't matter what it well, is. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause something I've always thought is like, I mean, it's such a different time, but like something I've always thought about the Maltese Falcon as like just an object is it's like, Oh, this is tacky. This is like fucking bullshit. It's like such, it's like, it feels like an artifact. It's just, it feels like something my grandma would own. It's yeah. like, it's like taste is so different than it was, than it is now of just like, like I feel like most detective things are, or like a lot of like mystery things are can be centered around, especially at this time, around like you know, jewels from another place, or like you know some sort of riches, and they're all like kind of, you know, they're kind of ta- they're like they're like you know a golden eagle, or they're like a an elephant that's made out of another like precious metal, and it's all like. If you walked into somebody and they had that in their home, it'd be like, this is like a little too much. It's like very extra. It's like not uh, as it, like a lot of it's pretty ridiculous. To go with the whole point of the movie that th- this whole thing was much ado about nothing that when yeah. they're trying, they finally get it and he starts scratching at it. He goes, oh, no, oh, no, it's lead. Where it's <laughs> like, oh, this whole their whole plan went went over like a lead balloon. It was yeah, all yeah. literally just a valueless thing. Yeah. That means nothing. All these people died. A fucking ship was lit on fire and some innocent ship captain got gunned down in the street. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's just it's like every little thing just, you know, measures up to I mean, because even when it's all starting and the detectives that are after him featuring one of my favorite guys, Ward Bond, they're like, oh, well, did you have uh, did you have uh, your partner killed so you could get with his wife? And yeah. it's all this thing. It's like, well, he is actually cheating on his wife, but no, he didn't do it. And he doesn't even like the wife. So all these things of like these grand ideas, these grand conspiracies. No, it's just some rich assholes trying to find something. And even that thing, they didn't even get. It's all just <laughs> went nowhere. It was all yeah. just a, a closed loop of tragedy and nonsense. I want to talk a little bit about um, Sam Spade as a character and Humphrey Bogart playing like you know this art we, we were talking about the archetype of the detective character before and i want to just like have you guys read any of dashiell hammett's other books or novels or these other characters yeah i actually i actually read a bunch of dashiell hammett in high school yeah. i even read this book and i saw the movie yeah. for the first time in high school because i got into those things and uh Same, yeah. just you know just quickly it, it really is kind of crazy how very like faithful houston was in bringing this to the screen yeah Oh yeah, no, it's very, it's more faithful than the other versions I've even seen of any other, like it's more faithful than the, the Thin Man version, I, I think at yeah. least, even though I'm like, Thin Man's like maybe my least favorite, no, that's not true, I, the Dane curse is awful, that's maybe his worst novel, but like the Continental Op is also like a really tough character to like read about, like because you don't, you don't really get you don't know really that much about him. Well, that's why he works better as the man with no name and, right. uh, you know, Yojimbo. It just these filmmakers yeah. going, well, this guy's not a character, so we kind of need an actor to just make him interesting. Right, exactly. And, and, and like, but Red Harvest is a great book with that because that's with his character, that the Continental yeah. Op. And then he also, of course, has uh, Nick and Nora Charles. And then Bogart played... I, I, my personal favorite noir author, uh, he played Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe character in The Big Sleep. And yeah. 
Like for me, Bogart is like the originator of the modern anti-hero that we have today. Like even aside from those characters, Rick from Casablanca is kind of like that. These kind of like guys that look like bullies that are like the hard, like, you know, they've lived a hard life and they don't trust anybody. And then some, you know, woman comes into their life and tries to change them. And they're like, you know, uh, emotionally abusive towards them and some, and, and sometimes physically. And it's, and it's just like very wild. Uh, like that, 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 that is who he sort of epitomizes this like sort of character that doesn't exist in real life. The like tough guy who could change, you know what I mean? There's two moments in this movie that I think are perfect and really show you that who Sam Spade is and one of them is after the first meeting with Gutman and he like leaves blowing up it's like well you you don't want to you're gonna have to get me and blah 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 you know call yeah. find me at five o'clock or whatever and he and he walks out and he goes to the elevator and he just smiles to himself like oh I'm putting on an act aren't I such a stinker yeah and then it's just the ending where he's she's like but I love you I love you don't you love me and he goes on the speech just like Maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I know one thing, and it's that if I had the Maltese Falcon and blah blah blah, I would have known you were going to probably come and shoot me in the middle of the night one day. And all, and right. he's just going on these things, and it's just like, you know, you killed my partner, and a man, if a man doesn't, you know, go after the man, whoever killed his partner, it's not good for business. But then that means who? What kind of a man am I? And he's going on this whole things like for as much of a shit heel and as much as an angry, cheating, lecherous guy he is, he's the only one in this world with a code. Yeah. He has, a, he has this moral compass that a Hammett wants to like, yeah. Like, yeah, this guy's a scumbag, but at least he like keeps his word about stuff, which is like kind of a, you know, it's a depression era <laughs> mentality of like, of like life is very hard. And like you have, if you have like some sort of moral code that you stick to, you will at least survive. Uh, it, which goes, you know, I mean, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all a way of processing trauma and having no language for that at the time. Which is, uh, it goes to something from, uh, reading his biography. Cause he goes, yeah. he talks about, oh, all these people talk to me about, oh, you're, are you an auteur? Are you an auteur? Like, what are all your movies about? And he goes, I'm not an auteur. I just made movies. And he goes, but if there was something I had to say to all my movies, it's this. And it's that I think I like making movies about people that think much highly, much more highly of themselves than they really should, and that leads to their doom, which is uh-huh. shown with every other character in this movie except for Sam Spade. He's the only one who knows exactly who he is, exactly uh-huh. what he's made for. He's got no sense of like, oh, I'm going to jump above my station, where everyone yeah. else is, oh, I'm looking for this royal thing, this regal thing. I'm trying to make so much money and bet- and you know live forever with all this money, and they all succumb to their doom i mean even in that little way his partner archer is married and he gets yeah. killed because he follows a woman into an alley trying to cheat on his wife because oh right. who like look, look at me and then he gets killed where yeah. sam spade's just like no i know who i am i'm this kind of shitty cold-hearted but <laughs> with a code guy like i'm not yeah. going to spend above that i'm not gonna punch above my weight class I think what this does interesting because Tom Tom knows this. I'm not a big noir guy. No, um, I uh-huh. love this film. I love I adore this film, and I adore this film since I was a kid. Uh, and I my especially I don't like neo noir a lot because I think that the problem I always write off too many. There are too many movies I think that just kind of their premise and what they think noir is is 
I'm a tough guy and it's tough being a tough guy in this tough, cold world. You got to be tough and there's James and all. What makes Sam Spade so interesting in this film and, and, and a lot of the, you know, the really good noir, and you mentioned Inherent Vice is the same way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think even another modern neo-noir is Blue Velvet, um, that uh, David Lynch film, which what they do yeah, yeah. is they give you a protagonist who is, they've got their world, they've got their life, they know who they are, they they know what they've got, and then they kind of get sucked into this much deeper underworld. And the question isn't just, what are they going to, you know, are they going to solve this thing? The same way you, when you watch Maltese Falcon, it's not really, you're not watching it going, is he going to find the Falcon? You're watching it going, how is he going to get out of this? He's visibly... Yeah, how, how is it all going to just end for him? Like, how is he going to, how is, is he going to solve this case? Is this going to be wrapped up in his life? Like, I think, like, another great example of this is, a, a, a like, maybe the best adaptation of any noir book written, to me, is The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. the Altman version. And that's, like, such a, like, The Big Sleep is a great movie. And, they're, and like, I love, like, the, I love the Philip Marlowe character. I'm a big, I think I'm a much bigger Raymond Chandler fan than I am of Dashiell Hammett. But, like, I the like the the Raymond Chandler books of the Philip Marlowe character they get sadder and sadder as as the stories go because Phil Marlowe starts off of, as this guy like he's an ass he's an asshole like all these detectives are, are fucking assholes but the, but he's a guy who he's an intern at the um, the the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, and he gets fired for mouthing off, and he becomes a detective after that. And throughout the books, he's just like more bitter because every case he takes, he realizes that oh, rich people are in control of everything, and like, why am I solving these cases anymore? It's all just the same. It all ends up being the same problems. And Dashiell Hammett realized that too when he was a detective. All these cases I'm following, they're all kind of saying that there's this underworld that a lot of people aren't privy to, don't get access to, only get a glimpse of if you're there, if you're asked there at all, like if you're not like insanely wealthy. And those that goes into things like Eyes Wide Shut mm-hmm. or uh, the most uh, a movie that came up pretty recently called Under the Silver Lake is a funny like take on that, too. And all these noirs, like Chinatown, another great example, starring John Huston. John Huston is playing what Humphrey Bogart would have aged into if he had lived long enough to be those characters. Yeah, in Chinatown. Oh, yeah. In Chinatown, like if 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 Bogart lived to be in his sixties, he would have played a character like that. Oh, oh yeah, like Huston does in Chinatown. I would have loved to have seen what the uh, film brats were, would be able to do with uh, old Humphrey Bogart. Um, oh my god! I mean, they tried to do something with Be- like Beat the Devil is another one. Like, I not to spoil it for you, it's a it's a bear. It's pretty boring, but like it's it's but it's got like it's got Bogart later in his career. It's got uh, Peter Laurie trying to get his career back after it being stalled in like the mid to late forties of just not getting work. And like to me, that's his. Uh, Phantom Thread is to beat the devil. John Huston is just like it's a little too like I don't know. He's working on something. He's trying to get something he's used to have with his people, but it's just not there. It's not clicking. I also want to note one thing that I think is you know talking about like where this works for me that other noir don't is that most other noir you know it's not you know it loses that person over their head 
element that we were just talking about also just kind of ignores uh, giving the characters dimensions. And I think that what this film does so well that so many other films miss. I mean, again, you watch the 1931 version or Satan Metal Lady, and when Sam Spade's car- his partner dies, he's just kind of like very matter of fact going, all right, well, these are the things that happen. Put a, take the name off the yeah. door. Bogart never betrays how sad he is, but we feel it. That when he says, yeah. ah, change it over, he's beaten down. And even, uh, you know, later when he gets the call and he hears the scream on the other end of the telephone, he's scared. Yeah. He's momentarily yeah. Yeah. scared. And what I love is, and we talked about this when we did High Noon. Um, mm. I love High Noon in part because Gary Cooper is scared. And I don't, I can't connect with a protagonist who is so, like, just that nothing phases him. He's just like, all right, I got to take action. I love the fact that throughout this movie, Sam Spade is trying his damnedest to keep some kind of semblance of control. And he's, he plays uh-huh. it well. And in that scene where he's going, we need a fall guy. And he's telling him, and he basically sells out uh, Wilmer. And he's, he's, uh-huh. he's taking control where he can, but is also fully aware the entire time that if he makes one wrong move, he is literally, he's dead. They will, yeah. will not and- hesitate. It, it, in that scene I mentioned before, when he leaves the first meeting with Gutman and he's like, he starts laughing to himself, he also looks down and his hand is shaking yeah. and he's just like, yep, I guess I'm in it now. Um, yeah. I I also think another point is, is that a lot of them forget to be funny. Yeah. Like, this movie's funny. This movie's got a, like, this movie's got a, a dimensionality to it. It's not just a one-note dour slog. It's like, it's no. funny, it's thrilling, it's sad, it's all these things. Was, a fun, was like he could, he was a good writer. He could write like snappy back and forth dialogue, and it's like you know, like something something I recognized from this movie that I hadn't clocked before. It's like it, it's kind of a Cullen Brothers movie. Like it's the type oh, yeah. of noir that they would be into because it's got all these weird specific looking characters. It's about it's about an object that's missing, which is kind of ridiculous. Which is a lot of their movies are centered around kind of mysterious objects go, like you know the, the the dude looking for his rug it's lebowski it's lebowski a noir that literally ends up meaning nothing where yeah. like oh i'm going to look for this thing and then it's like oh well the thing actually wasn't lost and or right, it doesn't yeah. even matter it's that's that's what all noirs have they start off with this thing long goodbye is my favorite because it's like that's like I like like Long Goodbye is like maybe one of the best movies you can ever watch right now about how to deal with like if if you know someone that's been canceled or something like you're like it's like oh my best friend is a is a is a scumbag no 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 no, no. I gotta find the truth and then you realize the truth as oh you can't fucking trust anybody and then like and then that's like it's like great it's like it, that's why I love it so much is because it's it's all it's all Philip Marlowe just trying to be like no. Look, I know this guy. This guy's not a this guy's not a scumbag. And then he gets to the bottom of it and realizes. Same with the Maltese Falcon. Is like, is like, I was like, all right, well, well, let's let's find this let's find this fucking Falcon. It's like this fucking Falcon doesn't matter anymore. Shit, Big Lebowski's basically Jeff Bridges being friends with Gutman and Joel Cairo. Yeah, and they yeah. go bowling together. And right. What's, what's great too is that there's this sense with Sam, you know, especially in this film, not in the older versions, but in this film that what I what I don't love is too many things to try and do neo-noir get way too nihilistic. And yeah. this this movie, despite being about so much futility and, and, and about how bullshit things are, 
it never stops right. being mad about how bullshit things are. Like it yeah. never stops. Yeah. You know, Sam Spade is mad yeah. at the cost of life and, and mad at these kinds of people. And he still does it. He still does what he has to do to get by. Mm-hmm. And he has those moments. I mean, one of my favorite lines, even though it's not, you know, this is such an infinitely quoted movie and there's so many great quotes, but the one that always yeah. sticks out to me is just when he's talking to, you know, when uh, he says to her, we didn't believe your story. We believed your $200. I wrote that down too. I love that line. It so perfectly captures his balance of, and his, his attitude of, he wants to do good and you believe that, you know, he wants to try and fight back against how cold and indifferent this world is when he can. Sure. But at the same time, it's kind of like he's aware of, he's not blinded by optimism anyway. He's not, right. he's not nihilistic, but he's not optimistic. He's just. He's a realist. He's like somewhere in between the, or a, what, what you would consider a realist at the time. Like he's just very like matter of fact. You know, I mean, and again, you know, I mean, maybe it's because it's 1941 or whatever, and this is, or yeah. this is how the book ends, whatever, but it's like, the movie ends with them getting caught. Yeah. But in a great way they do it, it's that he doesn't, he's not the one that catches them. As Once they leave the room, he runs to the phone and calls the cops, and he's like, okay, here's what's going on, get these guys, and yeah. watch out, because this Wilmer kid's fucking nuts. And he just sits with the girl, they have their talk and he kind of has the most revealing moment and he just lets them take her away and he's just like my well i think one of my favorite moments is well i hope they don't hang you by that precious neck kid and i'm just like god damn this move it and it's yeah. just all these little things of just like mike said it's it never gets boiled down and bogged down in nihilism he's always he stays mad but he's always realistic yeah and yeah you know i just think that ending is just so brilliant because how many movies would end even then, not even now, but like even then of just like, well, we're not going to actually let your hero ca- not capture the bad guys. They just walk away and you just have to assume, well, I guess the cops get them. Oh, can we address, by right. the way, I, I want to touch on the 1931 version changes the ending. Okay. Oh, does it? I mean, that's that not surprising. She still, gets, she still gets dragged away by the cops, but they add a scene where he visits her in prison and like talks to her. And as he's walking out, he says to the like the prison warden. Like, make sure you give her anything she wants. Treat her nice. And, like, seems to take this interpretation. Because there is an ambiguity to the way it ends and the way that he, you know, like Tom mentions that line, I hope they don't hang you by your pretty neck. I listened to, before uh, this, I listened to an audio version, like an audio drama they did with Michael Madsen as Sam Spade and Sandra Oh is the female lead. It was good. It was enjoyable to listen to. But the way Madsen delivers that line is the way that, we now view the detective, which is kind of just like this indifferent, like it's almost like a fuck you of a, you know, well, I hope they don't hang you by your pretty neck, sweetheart. Madsen's a good actor to cast for that type of role because he is like, I think he's closer to a Bogart type in what we have right now because he's so fucking gruff and like just clearly it sounds I mean, Nick Nolte's also one of those guys, like just sounds like they've lived a real rough life. But what's great about Bogart and, you know, and why he works so well in this, too, is the fact that and we touched on this earlier about how he has a tough guy look and he has he kind of he falls into this type of role in this tough guy role in this jaded role. But that's mm-hmm. not who he was really on the inside, at least at first. And so right. you do kind of get this extra sadness to that where when, you know, uh, so many actors who are, you know, the modern day, like tough guy actors, they love it. They want to be the tough guy. They want to be the bad guy. There's such a 
a humanity that Bogart brings to it and such a dimension that he brings to it where you just feel like if he, you know, when you see him, whether you're playing, whether he's playing Rick Blaine or, or Sam Spade or any of them, you get this vibe from him of if he could be doing anything else with his life, he would, you know, that if there was a, if there was another path for them, they'd be on it. You mentioned uh, The Dead End earlier, which is another movie I really love that Bogart is in where he's like, you're right, he's fourth build, but you're the most, he's the most recognizable name to us now. Something I love about that movie, which is what you're saying, is like he just brings this reality to everything he's doing. He looks like a real guy. Like, and you're right, if he wasn't an actor, he probably would have been like, I don't know, running a, running a restaurant or like being... Uh, a fucking cigarette salesman or something like I, he could have just done anything like and he's happens to be a good actor that just doesn't have i i'm sure he had some sort of ego but like you know no airs about him and was just and played guys of his like he was very conscious of the roles he took because he's like i i can bring something to this and he plays that type of character that i i don't think we i wish we saw we see it sometimes in movies especially if people are more sensitive to it kind of like I, you know, we, uh, Tom and I both loved Uncut Gems came out last year. And like the Safdie brothers are good at that too, which is this vibe of, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know where you, where did you come? where did you grow up, David? Where are you from? I grew up in New York. I grew up, I like, I grew up, my parents both work in the, has, have always worked in the Diamond District. I grew up around the Uncut Gems scene of just like, you know, 40, uh, you know, on, on 47th and Madison, <laughs> like yeah. all these like, area like in 47th and 6th and all these I, I grew up in that neighborhood see we're tom and i are both uh long island you know very blue collar long island so we've all got that same thing i remember that when uncut gems came out i'm not going to say the name but uh, a certain critic uh tweeted out that it was unrealistic because he'd never met anybody who acted like that and tom yeah. and i were both stunned by this because we're like no this is the actual com- this is the compelling story that that noir films have lost the thread of, but that, you know, Maltese Falcon sets up in a lot of these do, and you mentioned Dead End, of seeing characters who you're supposed to look at and who we saw in our daily lives of guys you look at stuck in a shit job or doing something they shouldn't, you know, doing some yeah. light, you know, Bruce Springsteen meeting across the, the you know, it river kind of, kind of stories where you just know, like, they don't want to be doing this. Like, they don't no, want to no, be no. doing this. And I think too often when films that, learned the wrong lessons from this and just think they can lean on the skeleton too often they make it that oh it's somebody who who loves being a criminal or he's like oh well this is you know this is the life for me and it's like you know with any of these characters that they need they if if they are attracted to this underworld it's because they need to be saved from themselves you know it's the same thing with Uncut Gems, which is which is kind of it has neo noir elements and it has the exact same thing of like it's all just you see rich people are just fucking borrowing from each other and nobody actually fucking has anything like the only re- like I I watched my friend a friend of mine really hated Uncut Gems at first and I and they were like I I couldn't understand who those who the Russian guys were it was like the Russian guys are crazy they are criminals they are actual bad like but they are muscle that they need to be around because guys like eric bogosian need to look tough it's that point of like i mean you take a movie like uncut gems or like this or like there's this gritty realism sense to it and those 
you need characters that are real that like you need a sam spade you need a a howie ratner where there's like oh you feel real you feel like there's something compelling them that they can't stop that it's just like they could be good people but they're just like getting in their own way but like if you want a story about a guy that's like i'm made for this i'm a criminal i love this shit it needs to be almost like a mythological kind of thing it needs to almost be like goodfellas where it's just like okay these are these are these guys they are not realistic people at all and we're going to show them for how empty and vacuous their lives are and you can't really like as much as as realistic as goodfellas is and the irishman is and how like distrustworthy and how grimy and how kind of boring at least in the irishman their lives can be there is also like well, this is a larger than life thing. This isn't what everyone in their life, yeah. everyone in life is doing. This like, okay, we're gonna show you that these guys are actually not cool. They are empty. Just as if they're not killing or getting killed, who, like they're nobodies. There's yeah. nothing to them other than their black hole of a life. And you know what? The, what movie does this perfectly? And I think, and we'll talk about it in a future season. What perfectly encapsulates what a good noir story should do? Because you can still have a detective who is jaded, and you can still have a detective who is a tough guy, but you need him to be overwhelmed. The movie that uh, illustrates that brilliantly is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. yeah. Because in that same way, it, it quite literally turns around and gives you a detective character and shows you, oh, he is getting further and further and further into a world that he does not want to be in. Now, in this case, of course, yeah. literally illustrated, because it's actual cartoons, but it's the same right. kind of thing as Maltese Falcon, where it's you're just further, further going like you you see that this guy does not want to know anything more about what's happening. There's no part of him that wants to dig into this. It's not like Sam Spade is calling somebody up and going, get me all the information you got on Joe Cairo. He's just like the sooner no, I can get away from all this. Exactly. It is like Lebowski. It's like, hey, I'm just I just want my rug back. I didn't want to know anything about all this. Like. I don't want to know who this missing woman is. I don't want to know about this girl's toe. Like, this is way over my head. And it's it, it's like Phil Marlowe. He's like, hey, listen, I, I just wanted to know if my, I want to know where my friend is. I don't want to know about this secret cabal of, like, rich people or, like, these, like, crime lords. Like, whatever. Like, none of it. Like, I don't want to know about any of this stuff. Well, that's why, that's why I think Chinatown is kind of the best that's of true, everything yeah. that came out after the modern the main period of noir which is that it really gets to the heart that jj giddies is a cynical guy he knows how things work that the rich are gonna you know the system's designed to fuck people over but he keeps getting himself into it because there is still a part of him that's alive and well and his heart is beating of i want to do the right thing i want to try to make things right for someone and that's the brutal gut punch at the end of the movie that's why forget it jake it's chinatown which is he he's done this before he's literally ended up in chinatown watching a tragic story unfold that he couldn't stop because that's just how things work in this world the rich are gonna get away with it again great use of john houston in that movie and i think that's why china jj giddies might be the ultimate version of that because he is like i'm i don't want to be doing this but as much as I want to make it like, oh, I'm just in it for the money. It's like, no, I'm, I'm a good guy, and it keeps fucking killing me every time things go wrong. Now, no. I think uh, I know we probably have to wrap up soon, but I realize like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Mary Astor in this. Oh yeah, movie. 
Like she's an incredible actress who had like kind of a rough uh, life and career and just like was, you know, always depressed. And, you know, I don't think she ever found like quite her start. Like this is one of her best movies, but like, you know, just like knowing about like how, you know, mistreated she was and how like how I, I really don't think she fell into a role that she quite like. Like she's a because she, she was such a great actress and was like like just horribly like miscast and stuff or just like taken and you know just looked over for most of her career. Yeah, no, I think she's uh, I think she's fantastic in this movie, yeah. and I think the way she plays it of it almost feels like she doesn't know it, how full of shit she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's obviously like with all these pulp writers they're not going to write the like you know from the 40s they're gonna the dialogue especially for women they're gonna be like kind of you know outdated and pretty, pretty groaners but like there's a lot of them that have these weird elements of like not weird elements but like surprising amount of depth and pathos that you would not suspect from a, a writer and especially a male writer in the 40s they have more they're they're more dimensional and i think mary astor actually gives a lot of dimensions to this character that is that that is like present in the book but like maybe does a better she she elevates it yeah definitely i mean it's i mean uh, like the lesser noirs would have just made her a femme fatale and she's actually right. the worst of everybody in it but yeah. it kind of makes it that she kind of feels like a victim of circumstance in a ways and that she's like everyone else, kind of taking a chance that's above her. She's punching above her weight class. Right. And also, yeah. she's so deep into it now, she kind of doesn't know how full of shit she is. She, like, yeah. she may not actually realize that she's lying half yeah. the time or that when she's like, oh, I, maybe you love me and I, I, maybe I love you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, does she know if she's actually telling the truth that she's like, it never has that moment where she drops the facade. It's like, well, you got me, Sam. Yeah, there's always a, you. I, f- I feel like there's so many of these writers like don't you re- you recognize Raymond Chandler's name a little bit more, and you recognize Dashiell Hammett's name probably the most out of all of them because like they can write better characters than a lot of those guys. They write actually like for as you know um, you know sexist as these movies as these books and, and characters were at the time. Like you know Dashiell Hammett wrote female characters that had agency. And like Nick and Nora Charles are a great example. They both have like, you know, they're a duo and she's always like, right. And she's, and like the high window is arguably like insane. Like, it's just weird. Like the, the female characters like turn on a dime for no reason, just because they're hysterical and it's bizarre. It's very like, oof, hard to get through. But like other, you know, in uh, the, in the long goodbye or in this movie, they're like, you know, Mary Astor's character, oh, Mrs. O'Shaughnessy, kind of like has the carrot in front of the stick. Like for a lot of the movie, like she's she, the power could be shifted at any moment, and it, you're it, she's exciting that way. I don't know if that makes and, any sense. Like, of course, and, no, and, it it does. And and I just I feel like you know uh, his secretary Effie is almost like the originator for the money penny character she feels oh, like oh yeah yeah 100 she loves she loves sparring with him and like maybe there's kind of an attraction there but she also kind of is like yeah he's kind of a shit heel and i as much as i love the guy i'm not getting involved in this nonsense he's always involved in it's a relief to hear that because that's also where the nick and nora charles like dynamic comes from 
this like the, yeah his secretary his secretary is openly honest about like yeah i'm not getting involved with this fucking creep i just like want this is like i was like ugh, I, what the fuck was i thinking even for like entertaining the idea a little bit now david i know you got to go um but i, I and the, it's amazing because there's so much that that this film is so rich there's so much we didn't even get to touch on we didn't touch on the you know the cinematography and how claustrophobic uh houston makes it oh, feel God. and for being in a war it actually kind of doesn't feel as dark and underlit as a lot of noirs. A lot of it's in like, like very well lit offices or hotel rooms or even on the street. It's like, no, we have street lights. It's not like walking around when there's like no electricity. And, <laughs> and, but we always, and we didn't note that Sam Spade also appeared in an episode of Sylvester and Tweety Mysteries called the Maltese Canary, which I'm sure we would have had an hour to talk about from that. I mean, I could talk about the, the Sylvester and Tweety Mysteries for, Maybe two weeks. There's so many weird <laughs> things about that show that's like this weird era in like late 90s Looney Tunes revival series on Warner Brothers where they decided to add a laugh track because that's what Scooby-Doo did. And it's just like, what is this? What is this? What is this genre after like at the end of the day, guys, what is this show? Um, but we always wrap up talking about kind of the reception at the time, which is I always focus on the Oscars and, and how many cases you have where a film now is canonized, but kind of ignored. Right. Uh, Maltese Falcon, in this case, was nominated for Best Picture alongside Blossoms in the Dust, Citizen Kane, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, One Foot in Heaven, Sergeant York, and uh, Suspicion, and the winner, How Green Was My Valley, which uh, is not in the original induction class, but does show up in year two. Uh, so we'll be talking about that. It's funny, The Little Foxes was written by Lillian Hellman, who Dashiell Hammett was and her were very long-term uh, romantic partners. Yep, they were both, and it was nominated was nominated for Best Screenplay, which is interesting mm-hmm. because, like you said, on that note, Dashiell Hammett's, you know, perhaps his most notable novel, uh, but adapted by Houston for the script, squares off against Lillian Hellman's Little Foxes, which she wrote the adaptation for the screen herself, and both right. of them lose to Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Which a movie uh, I like is so forgotten. It's crazy. Yeah. It makes really makes you think how useless the Oscars have always been. Well, and that's and on that note, so best supporting actor. The only other no- got three nominations: picture, screenplay, and best supporting actor for Sidney Greenstreet. And Greenstreet yeah. loses to Donald Crisp in How Green Was My Valley. Now, yeah. I've watched yeah. all of these nominees uh, in prep for this, and can attest that obviously uh, Citizen Kane and Maltese Falcon stand out above the rest. Um, yeah. If it makes you feel any better, I can attest that Here Comes Mr. Jordan is somehow not the worst of the Best Picture nominees. That goes to uh, One Foot in Heaven, a two-hour Frederick March as a priest movie. But I think it's so interesting, and also the fact that the same year that John Huston gets a Best Picture nomination for The Maltese Falcon, Walter Huston gets a Best Actor nomination for a movie that at the time was being called All That Money Can Buy. We probably know it better as The Devil and Daniel Webster. Uh, but Walter oh, Houston, yeah, would, yeah, that's a great yeah. movie. Uh, Walter Houston would lose to Gary Cooper for Sergeant York, but I just think that's—I always think it's interesting to kind of look at that in that perspective, and and not just the fact. Of course, that year is best remembered as the year that How Green Is My Valley beat Citizen Kane, but just to look yeah, at the, the range of about. Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to be talking about uh, Citizen Kane sometime this season. That's um, great. Well, everybody talked to about Citizen Kane. I mean, I was obsessed with Orson Welles like throughout my childhood. Well, you did it. There's a sketch. It's still on YouTube. You did a sketch with someone uh, that I I love, oh, yeah, uh, which is your 
You're Woody Winter Allen CL. and they're Orson yeah. Welles. Yeah. Which yeah, is, yeah, which me is and Frankie Cl did that the Allen v or- Orson Welles conversation, and it was uh, still very used to. That used to be one of my few impressions in my repertoire, and then I had to retire that for obvious reasons. And like I, but oh, it, I've you retired it. David, you retired it because since uh, Rainy Day in New York hasn't come out, it hasn't been relevant yet, right? But once that's out, right, you're hitting yeah, the circuit exactly. with that all over again. But that's um, where all my impressions go is relevance. Yeah. <laughs> well, bringing it back to Orson, I mean, John Houston and Orson Welles. John Houston, uh, you know, posthumously, it was in Orson Welles' posthumous last movie, The Other Side of the Wind. So, uh, you know, they had an interesting uh, relationship. And they were both the golden boys of their generation. They were the, they were the Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson of their generation. They were the young kids. And they both hit real lows uh, around yeah. the 60s. But John yeah. Houston was yeah. able to pull out of it in the 70s and have a little bit of relevance in the 80s before he died, whereas uh, right. Orson, Orson was uh, struggling the rest of his life. Orson Welles probably tried to make as many movies as John Houston ended up making, but like gave up on more than half of them. Like He tried to yeah. make so many interesting movies that would have been incredible if he had like the the like you know, he, 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 I don't know. He was so like distracted, but he just gave up so easily on certain projects. Like the other, I watched the other side of the wind and it's, I mean, it's insane, but it's a very interesting movie. Like, and like I would have watched any of those movies that he tried to make in the fifties and sixties that just couldn't, he couldn't get it together. Well, David, thank you so much for, for coming by. I mean, I know fantastic chat. This was great, man. Thank this was great, and uh, I might not have mentioned it on mic, uh, but, you know, uh, I did tell you beforehand, you know, all three of us were in the same room once. We all sat in the same row for uh, a rep screening of Disco Godfather, the Rudy Ray Moore film. I hope that uh, when all of this subsides, if cinemas still exist, David, I hope that the three of us can catch a, another Rudy Ray Moore rep screening sometime. Oh, that would be wonderful. I would love to, like, if they ever do Human Tornado or Disco Godfather or Dolomite. Yeah. Giddy Wheatstraw, Dolomite is my name, double feature. That would be pretty cool. I did uh, Dolomite is my name. Riley and I did Dolomite is my name and Dolomite double feature, which was great. It was really cool to see the actual movie. Yeah, I I actually kind of did that at Fantastic Fest last year where they showed Dolomite is my name as a secret screening and then you could go right into uh, Dolomite as your next movie, which was pretty oh, great. I love that. Especially Double with a crowd. All right, David, thank you so much. I'm so glad you came on for this. This was great. Thanks so much, guys. This was so much fun. Did you get a chance to watch the film, Kyle? Are you going to talk about that a bit or no? I'm going to emulate you a bit, uh, let you know the crazy way that I was first introduced to the Maltese Falcon in general. Go right um, A... Um, digest copy of I think like Life with Archie. I think it's like okay. I think from back in two thousand and five. I had to look it up, so I've got it. I've got it here. Uh, for some reason, uh, I, I gravitated towards a Jughead and Archie Digest comic, which I guess was only like two or three bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, not realizing that these are from the nineteen seventy four series, and I guess there is a five page story in which uh, Jughead finds a bird that looks just like the Maltese Falcon, except it's red, not black. I cannot for the life of you tell, I cannot for the life of me tell you how it ends. Um, 
but I asked, I remember being like, I don't know what a Maltese Falcon is and having my mom need to explain that to me. Can I take a guess that it probably ends with Jughead eating a burger? Um, it does. I, if anything, I would take it a step further and say that he eats the Falcon, but I'm, I'm not sure to be honest. I, I also want to say that I, I wish I could say I was surprised by that, but it's weird. Like once you said that, I kind of went, oh, okay. Cause I didn't think about it till now. You do kind of, Kyle, you do give me Jughead vibes, you know? I appreciate, I appreciate I, you that. Give me Jughead yeah. vibes and not just the fact that like you could pretty much eat whatever you want and you stay uh, rail thin. But yeah, no, you give me, now that I think of it, you give me kind of Jughead vibes. I think, I think you are the Jughead of our podcast. I, I think that what's great is I think Kyle sees himself when he thinks of himself, especially when he was, you know, like a high school kid, college kid, Kyle probably saw himself as like Riverdale Jughead, like dark and brooding and I'm a loner. But in reality, he's just like comic Jughead. He's just... He's just a goofy guy who likes his burgers. I would actually argue the opposite. I was really upset when Riverdale came out initially because I'm mm-hmm. like, what the hell is this? And of course, over time, I mean, let's face it, I own a Jughead hat. So I mean, over time you're still saying, what the hell is this? Kyle, did did Riverdale make you mad when it came out because you were you at that time still wanted to be an actor and it made you upset because you realized that Cole Sprouse was just taking all the roles that you would have gotten? I mean, in a way, that's sort of how I feel about Tom Holland, but I recognize talent and when I'm, you know, I'm way out of my league. So I just sort of bowed out there. But I don't know. I think you could have pulled off Spies in Disguise. Oh, I would have. I would have loved that. You know, he's, he's pulling off young Nathan Drake and Spider-Man. I mean, I'm not sure. No, what he's not. He could take from he's him. not. He is. He is not pulling off young Nathan Drake because that movie doesn't exist. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's it's filming as we speak, man. They are yeah, okay. you know, Mark yeah, Wahlberg okay. and Tom Holland. They're Our- masked up. Our takeaway here from this is this is a call to our listeners. If we have any listeners in this first season, this is a call to our listeners. Um, cast Kyle in something. He's down in Florida. So if you're filming in Florida, uh, cast him in, in something and preferably as a young Jughead. Please, please get me out of here before we secede from the nation. I don't, but I don't want a Riverdale type Jughead. I want Kyle as goofy comics Jughead. I want him. I want, you know what? Fine. Give me a teen drama. Put him in a teen drama. But have everybody else playing like crazy, like euphoria, like teens, and Kyle only wants burgers and 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 excuse any socialization. Someone cast him in that. As I begin to order what I can only assume is my thirteenth Travis Scott meal this month, <laughs> um, gentlemen, which film did you select for the registry of this episode? Again, it has to be an American film, and it has to be at least ten years old. You know, you could just like make a burger at home and just put barbecue sauce on it and just not go to McDonald's. Not the same. It is not as lit. And you know it, Tom. Kyle. No, I don't know that. Were you already planning on ordering a burger before we called you Jughead? No, maybe. I don't know anymore. I'm not sure which is actually the worst answer, if we're being honest. Okay, so when Maltese Falcon came up, I mean, my pick came to me pretty quickly. I mean, I think it's maybe the best straight ahead noir of the last 20 years not like a comedy with noir uh trappings like the nice guys or inherent vice uh i think this is straight away just one of the best it gets the everything we were talking about it's funny it's about a guy getting in over his in over his head it's bleak and cynical without being nihilistic there is still like a sense of hope to it uh, the dialogue is amazing. It looks great. It's got a unique se- uh, setting. And it was the movie that introduced the world to maybe one of the best working filmmakers today. Uh, it's Brick by Ryan Johnson. 
Um, I think if you're talking about modern noir, like uh, in the last 20 years of the 21st century, I think Brick is kind of heads and shoulders above like almost pretty much anything. I think it's it's the best straight ahead noir we've gotten in a long time. I think it's amazing. Brian Johnson really introduced himself to the world and he's been doing pretty great work ever since. I mean, his last two movies, Last Jedi and Knives Out, I would say when their 10 year induction period is up, I would put those up to the National Film Registry without any hesitation. But since they don't match up uh, to the Maltese Falcon, nor are they 10 years old, uh, I think Brick is kind of like, you could double feature these two movies and have a great, like, oh yeah, I could see the, the I guess, was 60 years at that point time frame and how like we got from one to the other. Fantastic. I love Brick. I'm, I'm so glad you picked that. Um, it's a great film. And that, I came to that uh, before, I, I think I came to that because I had watched Brothers Bloom right yeah i think that yeah i watched brothers bloom and i was like okay what's this guy got and i love brick um at one point before we did the episode and so funny how these things can switch as we're talking before we did the episode my thought was i was going to focus on the character actor elements of it and the strange people in it and so i was going to talk about how much i enjoyed green street in this and my segue was going to be that Sydney Greenstreet inspired the original plan for Jabba the Hutt and, and you know, just the, the legacy that that has. And talking about the way that Maltese Falcon influences films you wouldn't even think are influenced by it. So I was going to make the case for Return of the Jedi based on Sydney Greenstreet. But while we were talking, uh, talking with David, help me identify what I love about Maltese Falcon. Help me identify, and I brought this up in the episode, um, help me identify what it is that bothers me about so much neo-noir. Because obviously, uh, Tom knows I have a very small tolerance for that. And what it is, is, as I mentioned, it's the person being in over their head. It's the it's not reveling in the darkness of the world, but kind of just teasing it to you. Um, it's what appeals to me about things like the first John Wick that kind of just introduces the idea of like, yeah, there's some bad characters. There's some weird stuff. You don't want to know anymore about this. Uh, I love those kind of things. So to me, the thing that does that so well, the thing that you know, so many neo-noir films that I hate draw the wrong lessons from Maltese Falcon. This draws all the right lessons. Um, this is a film that I absolutely adore. I saw right coming out of right toward the end of high school and influenced my decision to really get passionate about film and study film. And it just does everything right, which is uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. The fact that it's not in the registry already is shocking. Uh, and it was one that I was always going to nominate for the registry. I just had it on a different uh, uh, film, but I, I love Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet does everything that a good noir story should. Uh, it just, it gives you a character you can kind of root for. It recognizes how dark and, and bad this world can be and how scary and uncertain it can be, but it never revels in it. And the best thing is, it is a story about, an underworld that never Frank is not a, a, an admirable character, Frank Booth, you know, um, you don't want to be like Frank Booth. You don't want to know anyone like Frank Booth. And even Isabella Rossellini's character is not, she's a, a femme fatale and a damsel in distress, but there's really no point where you're sitting there thinking, I want to be in this situation. It doesn't do that like, oh, you should want this woman. It's just like you truly feel that idea of like, oh, Jeffrey Beaumont, 
you understand that he can't pull himself away from this woman, but you're sitting there going, please pull yourself away from all this. Save yourself. This is terrible. This world is awful. Get out. So I think that Blue Velvet and Brick, too. I love Brick. They, they, they both just kind of take the right lessons from this genre. And so Blue Velvet is my pick for the National Film Registry. Thank you for listening. And thanks to David Bloveband for joining us. You can follow David on social media at Bloveband and watch his work on The Chris Gethard Show on HBO Max and his new film, Uncle Peckerhead, wherever you rent your movies. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. And you can find me at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at your missing out podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.